the Italian Wine Podcast is the community-driven platform for Italian wine geeks around the world. Support the show by donating at italianwinepodcast.com. Donate five or more euros and we'll send you a copy of our latest book, My Italian Grape Geek Journal, absolutely free. To get your free copy of My Italian Grape Geek Journal, click support us at italianwinepodcast.com or wherever you get your pods. Grazie mille. Wine to Wine Business Forum is a training and networking event for anyone involved in the wine business. Held in Verona on November 13th and 14th, this year, the forum will involve over 90 international speakers in over 50 sessions on topics ranging from marketing and communication, sustainability, strategy, new market trends, and market focus. In collaboration with the Italian Trade Agency, a number of market-focused sessions will be broadcast in a podcast series on the Italian Wine Podcast, a media partner of the Wine to Wine Business Forum. Hi, everybody. Good afternoon. Uh, I'm Juliana Colangelo. Many of you know that by now. It's my third session today. Thank you, Stevie. It's a little marathon, but um, no, in all seriousness, thank you, Stevie, for the, the platform, the opportunity to be here today with you all. I'm really, really excited about this session today with Dan Petrosky. We get to talk about two of my favorite things, Italian-American culture and wine. So two things we both know very well from growing up uh, in the tri-state area. But first, let me tell you all a little bit more about Dan and his illustrious career. So Dan was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, attended uh, Columbia University. After graduating, he had a very successful career in advertising with Time Inc., earned his MBA at NYU, and during that time was drinking a lot of wonderful wines. Uh, he took some time to take a sabbatical and ended up in Sicily, way ahead of uh, White Lotus. And upon returning from his harvest experience in Sicily, thought he would work in wine sales in New York, but ended up out in California uh, making wine once again. He eventually became the winemaker at Larkmead Vineyards and also launched his own brand, Massacon, which is what we're here today to talk about. So Dan's background in publishing as well as in winemaking, making a label that embodies the Italian lifestyle and produces uh, Italian white wine varietals in California is what leads us to our topic, which is the branding of the Italian lifestyle for the American market. The good news is we're starting from ahead here in Italy. Americans love all things Italian, but how do we take that love affair with Italy and turn it into successful branding? Dan, having recently sold Masican to Gallo, is a prime success story to talk about this topic and talk about the successful branding of the Italian lifestyle for the American market. So that's what we're here to talk about today. So Dan, take it away. Well, thank you, Juliana. Um, I'm kind of nervous now because I really still am pinching myself that uh, this small little white wine only brand in Napa Valley, California uh, sold to the world's largest wine company. Um, so I'm still trying to figure that out and maybe we can talk it through in this conversation. But I will say the title of this conversation uh, came about when Juliana and I spoke on a, the Italian wine podcast earlier this year to talk about the history of Italian wine grapes in California. Um, there was a history, but then there was a, also a decline and then a resurgence of it. And now today in 2023, 2024, as I move forward leading Masakon into the future, we're going to try to bring that back in a big way. And we'll talk a little bit about that a little bit later. So just don't worry about the title here. Um, we're going to just jump straight into why Americans love 
Italians and the Italian lifestyle. I wanted to give you a few points and some statistics about this. But first and foremost, um, my harvest finished on Thursday of last week. I got on a plane on Friday. I did not have a presentation ready. Um, I think I'm wearing the boots and the jeans that I, I left the winery with on Thursday. So um, I got really excited. <laughs> yes, <laughs> French shower. Um, I, um, I got very ex uh, excited about the AI presentation yesterday and Regina and she started talking about the tools we all can use to make our lives more effective and more efficient. So yesterday after that presentation, Juliana and I like, had a brainstorm and said, hey, let's just use Dali, ChatGPT's uh, visual programming to create our presentation. So we created this yesterday at three o'clock. Um, so all the illustrations you see above us came right out of prompts that we put into ChatGPT. So Stevie, you will be happy to know that we have taken action from um, seminars uh, within 24 hours of the seminar happening. So here, why do Americans love Italy? And you can see a, a, a faint representation of Frank Sinatra. There's a little bit of a Madonna in there as well. A couple of characters from The Sopranos. Uh, Italy is in there. Um, so let's jump right into it here. It's like a Where's Waldo for Italian Americans. I love it. First and foremost, why Americans love Italian is they go to Italy. 10% of all the tourists in Italy are Americans, and they bring Italy culture and Italian culture back to America. First, we've leaned into Little Italy, meaning on a restaurant basis. There are 50,000 Italian restaurants in America. There are 150,000 restaurants in all of Italy. So when you think about your opportunity to sell wine, you are already at a third of the market of your entire country. So that's, an that's a great opportunity for wine sales. Food is a big part of it. Um, food is a big part of the culture. But also, those Americans who came to Italy and brought the culture back, Howard Schultz in 1987 came to Italy, had a business trip to Milan, went back to Seattle, bought out his business partners in his, um, in his coffee shop, and created Starbucks. And he didn't just create Starbucks, he created coffee culture in America. He's not creating pumpkin spice latte. He put 16,000 stores on the ground in America about coffee culture. That is not product. That's about experience, that is about benefit. Fast forward to today, in 2007, Italy was conceived in Torino. 2010, they opened their first store. There's 10 Italy's in America today, with another one, a third store opening in New York next year. They believe they want to get to 16 in America by 2025. And that's about food and beverage culture. So taking it to, we have the restaurants, the Italian restaurants you experience out of home. Italy is bringing you in home with product. Speaking of that product, uh, even though the French outpace the value of Italian wines in America, Italian wines sell 45% more bottles. So there's more quantity, more volume of Italian wine spread out through America and put on tables in restaurants and homes throughout. And when you're at home drinking Italian wine, what are you doing? It's entertainment culture. Seven of the top 50 films of all time, we're talking Goodfellas, we're talking Godfather 1 and 2, um, Pulp Fiction, uh, Mean Streets, Apocalypse Now. These are all Italian-American directors and or actors. And then you take it to, you know, from the big screen to TV, and you have Rolling Stone calling The Sopranos the number one TV show of all time. Not only did American publications say that, the British newspaper The Guardian said it as well. So we know why Americans love Italy. It's, it, it's, there's an attraction to the culture, there's an attraction to the food, the wine, the entertainment. You know, we overuse the terms, it's a love letter, but Americans truly have a love letter story and life and relationship with Italy. So your total addressable market of selling wine in America or selling any product in America is easy because 
Americans want to lean into the Italian lifestyle. Well, if they leaned in so much to the Italian lifestyle, you're going to see over the next few slides that they actually don't want to buy Italian-made grapes into wine from American producers. But I'm hoping to change that. So in 1967, Bob Mondavi created what he wanted to be. He wanted to get out of the table wine game and wanted to raise the level to premium wine. So he started Mondavi. He fought with his brother who spun off, started his Mondavi winery in 1967. Ten years later, in 1976, we're going to look at these slides here. These are the California Grape Crush Report of French varieties. When I say French varieties, I'm only talking about Cabernet and Chardonnay. And then I'm talking Italian varieties. I'm talking about all Italian varieties in California. In 1976, it was almost parity. 55% French, 45% Italian grapes planted in America. Between 76 and 86, unfortunately, there was a phylloxera epidemic, and people decided to start changing um, their varietal plantings. And why did they go to the French side as opposed to the Italian side? Even then, in 1986, there was more Barbera planted in California than there was Cabernet Sauvignon. So even up until 1986, very modern, less than 40 years ago, there was still more Italian red grapes planted in America. But that changed drastically because with the judgment of Paris in 1976 and Americans besting, you know, the French considered the best wines in the world, uh, the American uh, wine vigneron decided that they wanted to lean into the French culture. They wanted to, you know, to continue to make the best wines in the world and be part of the culture of the best wines of the world. And unfortunately, those were not Italian. So where does that leave us today? During that timetable of that last slide of where Italian grapes have come from, we, we us Italian lovers, we saw all of that red wine grapes collapse. We saw Antonori in 1982 plant 300 acres of Sangiovese on Atlas Peak. Today, there is three acres of Sangiovese on Atlas Peak, and Antori, Antonori still owns that property. What we did see was you saw a massive insurgence of white wine. That massive insurgence of white wine is Pinot Grigio. And we went from zero Pinot Grigio plants in California in 1986 to 200,000 tons last year. So there is a, a movement towards white wine. This wasn't necessarily my decision to be Masacom because of the Pinot Grigio movement, but if you look at the other sales of white wines in, in America, and you look at the stats that Danny Berger sent out yesterday, or you guys presented to you all yesterday, Cavett Pinot Grigio, Santa Margaret Pinot Grigio, these are millions of cases of white wine coming from Italy into America and onto the tables at restaurants and homes. This is, we tried to do this in America. Two people tried to do this, Bob and Davi with La Familia in 1997, and George Ver, ex-Berenger, uh, in 1995 at Luna. So they tried to create the Calatal movement. They tried to bring the Italian grape revolution to California. They planted Sangiovese at Luna. They planted Pinot Grigio at Luna. Um, Bob Madavi planted Tokai Friulano in Monterey County. He was trying to make, you know, white table wines. Um, he was planted Sangiovese in Barbera as well. Um, massive failures, huge failures. And within five to seven to 10 years, those businesses were gone or turned over, or sold, or forgotten about within larger organizations. Um, so why does it make me optimistic as a, as a white wine producer uh, focusing on Italian varieties? Masacan is Napa's only white wine winery. It's 16, excuse me, new, new uh, records show it's 1,800 registered wineries in, this, uh, in Napa Valley. Uh, Masacan is the only white wine winery in that entire 1,800. Um, I started Masa Khan in 2009 because I lived in Sicily in 2005, 2006, worked in a vineyard, drank nothing but white wine. I was living in, um, outside of Catania. We drank Etna Whites. We didn't drink Etna Reds. 
And I came back to America and we drank nothing but Cabernet Sauvignon and Chardonnay. And those wines were big. That was the big flavor era. That was the 2005 to 2006, 2007, 2008. Those are the Parker Boom era, era years. That was when Pinot Noir was 15% alcohol. That just didn't sit with me um, as we were, you know, hanging out outside, living the Mediterranean lifestyle with friends and family, being a vigneron, being a winemaker, um, being really cool, wearing the boots, doing all the things. And it was like 90 degrees and it was 8 p.m. and we were drinking really rich, heavy wines. I said, this just doesn't make sense. So Masakan was really born out of a cultural desire. We were already consuming Italian products culturally, but as American producers, we weren't living the vision that we ha I had personally as living in a Mediterranean climate and a Mediterranean environment. I wanted to be drinking Mediterranean-style wines. California wasn't making those wines at that time. It gave me a window, an, op an opening, an opportunity to say, I want to produce the things that I want to drink. So I started with 400 cases, you know, nothing, very small. Went to 500 cases, to 700 cases, to 1,200 cases, 2,500 cases. And I always said, hey, look, I'm making the wines, I'm selling the wines, I'm going to market door to door. I'm, people are buying wines from my website, I'm delivering them to their house. I can't make this very super stressful that it's gonna actually impair the, the, my day job. So I made enough wine that the market would absorb. And that got to a point where the market was growing too much for me to, to not be focusing 100% on Masakan. In 2001, I made the, the choice to, to leave my day job and pursue making this, doing something what I thought George Vare, who was my mentor at Lu and when he was at Luna, and what Bob and Davi failed to do. And that's some really big fucking shoes to fill because these are two icons in the American uh, wine business. But I think that we can do this. And I was, I was totally confident in myself. And then one day Joe Gallo called and said, hey, I love what you're doing. How can I help you? And I said, what do you mean? <laughs> and then he went through the process of thinking through how do we make Masakan this white wine, this revolutionary white wine brand in California that reaches more people, that makes it more accessible, that you are able to find it at your local store, at your restaurant, on your corner, and you can afford to buy it and enjoy it. How can we bring quality white wines, Italian-themed white wines? I make 11 grape varieties. Nine of them are Italian grape varieties in California. How do we grow that production and grow that network forward? And over a bottle of Italian white wine, um, Joe Gal and I hashed it out and we decided that this is what we're going to do. And I guess the big question is, how the fuck did I get there? How did I have the largest wine company in the world calling the smallest revenue winery in all of Napa Valley and say, we want to take what you're doing and blow it up? Yeah, that's what we're here to talk about and find out. Hopefully you'll tell us all your secrets, Dan. So um, let's talk about the bullet points on this slide as a way to dissect what you just said. Why did the largest wine company in the world come knocking on your door 7,000 cases to purchase Masicon? What did they see in your brand and what did you create with Masicon that was so successful? So, you know, first, the total addressable market being present. I think we spoke about earlier that Italian grape varieties declined in California because Americans want to purchase a piece of the Italian lifestyle by purchasing authentic Italian wines. But how did you take that, what could be a challenge to Masicon and make still a successful brand? The best point made today is that in America as a wine producer, I saw when I actually made wine in Italy, when I made wine in Friuli for four years and imported those wines into America under the Masicon brand, those sales were stagnant because I was an American making wine abroad and trying to bring this marketplace into 
restaurants and homes, and I was shocked at it. I thought it would have been a great opportunity to have a brand live in two places simultaneously, making a singular statement with the wine, and it would bring joy or enthusiasm or curiosity. But everyone rejected the Italian wine I made. And it came to Giuliana's point is that, yes, it was made in, from Italian dirt in an Italian winery and imported under an Italian label, but the reality of it wasn't, it didn't have the ethos of Italian hospitality and Italian culture. And it, for some reason, I couldn't break through that. But what I realized was that there was a, a massive magnetism towards what Masakan was doing to create this marketplace or to insert itself into this marketplace of all the, all the statistics I just showed you about restaurants and about culture and about history and about food and coffee. These are things that Americans adore because it's a bit of escapism for them. It's a bit of nostalgia and romance. I tell the story all the time. My wife's sister and my sister went to Italy for the first time on their honeymoon and they'd never been back, but they don't stop talking about it. And it's been 25 years. So this is something that sticks with us. So my goal with Masakan was, how do I create a wine in the style of an Italian white wine, in the style of a Mediterranean white wine that takes you back somewhere? that takes you to this romantic, nostalgic place. And if I can push the wines into the atmosphere of the culture that already exists in America, that we love Italy, all I need to do is I'm the key to bringing you back there. And that was what I was doing with everything from my marketing, my advertising, um, to my communications, to my Spotify playlists, to you know, my editorial. I mean, if you go to the Masakan website, there's over 30,000 words on the website. Don't talk about wine. Italian Wine Podcast, brought to you by Mama Jumbo Shrimp. Yeah, and that brings us, I think, to that second point. Sell the benefit, not the product. You've just described a few ways in which you're selling a benefit to the Masakan customers, the playlists, the lifestyle the recipes, the web content, and there's probably some Italian producers in this audience that might be a little bit envious of, of the position that you've taken the Italian lifestyle and put it into the Massacan brand. But talk a little bit more specifically about that because, you know, we're all here to learn and come up with new ideas for sales and marketing. So talk a little bit more tangibly to us about how you took that Italian lifestyle and put it into the Massacan brand. And this sell the benefit, not the product, I think is uh, the, the easiest way to think about this from a marketing perspective is think of Nike. You don't buy sneakers, you buy the ability to be like Mike. You buy the ability to Juliana runs marathons when she puts on her Nike sneakers. Like that is what you buy. And I think the wine industry has a major problem with understanding that, understanding that wine is a vehicle to something else in someone's lives. We have this problem, and it's part of bullet point number three as well, is we have this problem of talking about ourselves. We have this problem of when marketers told us to be storytellers, we only talked about ourselves. We didn't actually think about our customers, think about who our customers were and are, and how our customers consume our product. What's the benefit of someone drinking Masakan in their home or at a restaurant? There's the price value benefit, the qualitative benefit, there's the escapism benefit. If I can trigger an emotion, Masakan never owned a vineyard or a winery. It was an idea. And ideas are more powerful than the real thing. And what we do in the wine industry is when we have a, a real thing, like a vineyard or a winery or a wine tasting room, we want you to come to us. We want you to experience us and to lodge that memory in your brain. I can't do that with Masakan because I don't own anything. Gallo doesn't own anything. They own the name Masakan. 
So what we're doing and what, what we're gonna build upon is having these communications, like where do you wanna drink a glass of wine? You wanna drink it when you're watching a movie, when you're Netflix and chilling. And we wrote a, a piece about all of our favorite Italian movies. You wanna drink it when you're cooking. You wanna, we're writing a cookbook. We have 15,000 words in a cookbook. We've done 15 chapters on, uh, on the, the Mediterranean Masakan cookbook, but it's all about Italy, traveling around and creating Italian dinner parties, regional Italian dinner parties. So all of this content exists to meet you where you are with about, and hopefully Masakan is that vehicle that is on the table when you're there. We created a magazine three years ago in partnership with Fightin to talk about how do we escape our homes during quarantine during the middle of the pandemic and how do we go to restaurants throughout Europe or travel America or go to galleries and museums and see great architecture. We did this all because we wanted people to experience what they do in their daily lives and insert Masakan into that experience. You read, you watch TV, you listen to podcasts, you cook, you commute, you do all these things. And how do you get this a brand as part of your fabric of your life? And I don't have something that allows people to come to me except an idea. And again, I go back to this idea is better than the real thing. You know, Nike sneakers aren't the best sneakers in the world, but the idea of wearing them is better than the real thing. And that's where I've been with, with this product, like this understanding that the product is not, you know, the perfection of the product is not what we should be worrying about. We should be worrying about our consumer. And this is that bullet point number three. It's not me, it's you. This goes back to that storytelling theme. Everyone tells stories about themselves. Well, Guess what? 1,800 wineries in Napa Valley, 1,100 vineyards, they're all the best. 1,100 vineyards, they're all the best. All the winemakers, they're all the best. Everyone's the best. How could that be true? It's not Montessori school. Not everyone gets a fucking medal. The bottom line is stop talking about yourself and meeting your customers where they are. Truly, don't just listen to the message and pretend you're doing it. Actually say, it's not me, it's you. I wouldn't be here without you. Thank you. Let me figure out how I can fit myself into your life. At what stage of your life? We sit here and talk about, oh, I'm so afraid of, I'm so afraid of the next generation not drinking wine. Well, guess what? A 21-year-old wants to travel to Italy, just like a 61-year-old does. So we stop thinking, we stop ageism in consumption. All the statistics we showed earlier about the love affair with Italy is it spans from 21-year-olds to 61-year-olds. Like we have to stop thinking that we're putting ourselves in these buckets and these targets and we're afraid of the next generation. We're not afraid of them. They wanna be here too. They wanna be sitting in this room. They wanna be out walking in the piazzas in Verona. Like this is how we have to start thinking about, it's not me, it's you. And I think that's something that we've, you know, marketers have been telling us for years, but here it is, it takes time. Mm -hmm. And Dan, one of the reasons I was so excited for you to be at Wine to Wine for the first time is you bring a really unique perspective and a unique lens to what you're doing with marketing with Masakan, but also your background in publishing. Can you talk to us a little bit more how that background has informed the decisions you made with Masakan and how it will inform future decisions as well as you continue the partnership with Gallo? Partnership takes time and relationships with consumers take time. Advertising will tell you you need four, a minimum of four impressions before a customer will engage with what you do as a brand. So if you think you're gonna go to America and pour in the slow wine um, uh, tasting one time and say, oh, come back and be like, oh, that was a failure. The failure is your mindset. You gotta do it five times. You gotta do it 10 times. That takes money, takes investment. 
And that's something that we don't do well as an industry. We do not invest our money. We'll invest our time. Our wine takes time. We have patience with growing grapes and growing old vineyards and making wine and aging wine. We have zero patience with marketing and spending money. When I met Juliana and hired her to be our PR agency at Larkmead, I told her, I'm hiring you because we're celebrating our 125th anniversary in three years. Let's make a roadmap to what that looks like. That was a three-year plan. But when I started Masakan, I said, there's a 10-year plan for my PR. I said, I'm not going to get an article written about Masakan by Eric Asimov because I don't need it right now. Everyone in this room wants an article written in the New York Times about their wine brand. I didn't want it. I said, I want it when I need it, when I need to sell wine, when I need an extra bump, when I need something to kind of help wine sales in the fourth quarter in New York, I'll want Eric Asimov to write about my wine. But today, I don't need him. Still to this day, Eric hasn't written about my wine. And he has in group formats, but as a singular soul love affair with a wine, which Eric does so well, he has not done that with Masakan. And he happens to be a good friend. I just did a talk with him at the New York Times last two weeks ago. And I think PR, marketing, we have to truly get out of this ROI, media C mindset in the wine industry. It's going to kill us. It's going to destroy us if we're worried about the next generation. Yeah. I think that's a really, really valuable point. And as hard as that might be to hear, we all know that we have bottom lines to meet and tough business environment ahead of us. But I think you're, you're absolutely right, Dan. It's really important to keep that top of mind. Uh, talk to us a little bit. What's next for Masticon? I mean, now with this partnership with Gallo, what do you foresee as the future? What are you excited to do with this new partnership? How do you envision taking this brand further? First and foremost, the one thing that Joe, Joe Gallo and I always talked at the highest levels. And what I mean by that is we talked about how we can bring, make Masticon more accessible, make more wine and make it more affordable to uh, customers nationwide and have the, have the vehicle to actually put the wines on tables in restaurants and, and via retail shops. That to me is my number one goal. And with the, with the partnership, it's an access to, to some of the greatest vineyards in California. It's an access to a number of wineries that will give me more tools and a toolkit to make better wine. And then on the, the, the wholesale side, it gives me the access to distribution network of an amazing team of professionals who are just joyful to work with, who just love wine, and who will put the wine in their bag and tell a great story. And I think that is a, um, as a machine, for lack of a better word, is something that will help you know, take Masakan to that next level, but that's just making wine. That's product. I said, I wouldn't do this unless I had creative control and that we continue with a marketing budget to do the things I was doing. And I'll be honest with you, I've failed at a lot of things from a short-term immediacy ROI investment. And I think of things like internet advertising, Google advertising, Instagram advertising. I think of advertising in the Paris Review. I think of advertising at, you know, Condé Nast and Food and Wine Magazine and Travel and Leisure email banners, buying email notifications. I do all of those things. I spent $225,000 uh, last year doing all of those things. And that's that's a significant portion. That's a lot more than some of the uh, larger wine companies or even you know, the, on a percentage basis than a Fortune 500 company would spend uh, on their marketing, on a percentage basis of their revenue. And for me, that was a huge chunk of money, but it was about this, en this engagement over time to have these impressions, to have this opportunity to meet people where they are 
And I've advertised on podcasts. I listened to a great podcast seminar earlier today that Juliana was on, and I've advertised on podcasts, and I had some of the funniest you know, uh, connections with the host, with my wines, and how they talked about the wines and the advertising. And I, to this day, I laugh about it. Did I get any sales? Zero. Zero from a DTC side. But people always ask me, what's the, what's the one that works? What's the silver bullet? What's the DTC driver? And I'm like, none of them worked for Masakan. There was one, and I'll talk about it in a minute because the person's in the room, but none of them worked. But it worked on the wholesale side because it met the customers where they are. And I've been sold out of wine by the fourth quarter every year since Masakana started in 2009. And I think all those efforts that didn't show immediacy of ROI, a DTC ROI, showed immediacy of wholesale ROI. More opportunity for people to find the wines and buy them and bring them home. My retail sales, since I started investing in marketing, have gone up, have surpassed my restaurant sales. In 2018, Masakan, 50% of all my wine was sold by the glass in America. In 2019, it was about 60-40, excuse me, 50-50. Obviously, the pandemic happens, I switched to 60-40. Today, I've held that 60-40 in retail because people are eating more at home. They're taking the culture, they're taking my recipes. I did, a, I did 11 virtual cooking classes with my customers. I did 148 Zooms, virtual tasting Zooms between April 1st, 2020 and December 2021. Brought Masakan into people's homes and had a laugh and had, a, and had fun and joy and watched them clink glasses and cook food together and did it virtually. And these things, they never really turned on my DTC profits, but I was sold out every year. I had to make more wine. And I think that was the ROI. So you can't really say, well, what's the silver bullet? I will say the silver bullet is by the glass. And it was talked about with Adam and Miss Regent yesterday in the LVMH conversation. The silver bullet is, you know, brand building is by the glass. And I'm going to use an, uh, an advertising um, analogy for this. Selling advertising, the biggest recall from a consumer is that first opening page spread. They'll remember the Ford F-150. They'll remember the Chanel ad. They'll remember the Gucci loafers but they, or, or the watch ad. You get halfway through the magazine, they don't remember what the ads look like. You know, everyone in this room has been to Bottega del Vino and that fucking wine list. Do you remember what was on page 60? Do you, I, you're, you just start to blank out. So get to the front of the wine list. Granted, unfortunately, today a lot more wine lists are being just one piece of paper. They're not a book anymore or they're a, some sort of electronic device. But get to the front page. The front page is where you're going to build the brand. The 16, to be one of 16 or one of 15, as opposed to one of 160 or one of 1,000, is where you're going to build brand. So I love that that was said yesterday because that's been a, a small target of mine forever. And, I, and it actually, I didn't, it didn't come to me naturally to think that way until I did Instagram advertising. Anyone ever do that? I did Instagram advertising and it cost me $5 for a click. Wasn't even, wasn't even someone who actually followed me. It just cost me $5 for someone to click through. And I said, that is the worst return on investment of all time. So immediately the next year in California, I took my pricing of my wine from $23 for one case wholesale to $18 by the glass. $5 off by the glass pricing because that's five glasses of wine per bottle $1 per person experiencing my wine in a place where I want them to experience it, in a restaurant. Shelly Lindgren one year bought out my entire vintage of uh, my Greco and, um, and at the time it was Pinot Grigio, and she brought out the entire vintage, 28 cases. 28 cases, five glasses per bottle, 
That's 1,500 impressions. I'll pay $1,500 for 1,500 people to experience my wine, as opposed to $5 to have someone click through to my fucking Instagram. So you have, you have to take something and, and turn it into your favor in a positive way. And because of the sales teams we have, because of the restaurant love that Italy has, we have the ability to do that. Right. And I think though, Dan, despite, you know, what you just said about the Instagram ads, you have tried everything when it comes to marketing. And I think you've done a lot of things that most brands just aren't risky enough to do or don't take the time to, or for whatever reason, uh, haven't tried. So tell us about some of the risks you've taken in marketing, some of the successes, and then maybe some of the greatest failures too. As I said earlier, there's close to 20 or thousand words on my website that don't pertain to wine. And it's a concerted effort of mine. I have a love affair with the, the, the Australian product Aesop, which is a skincare product branding. I just think their branding and marketing has been genius. And their website, if you can do a deep dive into art design and architecture, you just leave their product website. And so I, I modeled Masakan off of that a little bit. And that's been a massive financial black hole. But it's actually, you know, we're moving away from, we're moving away from SEO and into artificial intelligence. Again, this is a really important thing to understand. And someone, I think Robert Joseph said it earlier yesterday, is like, once we get, once everyone becomes an expert at SEO, it's going to go away. And guess what? That's happening next year because AI is going to take over. And everyone who raised their hand yesterday said they used AI, an AI bot like a chat GPT in that, in that conversation is not using SEO anymore, not Google searching anymore. So why would you be spending money there? So I spent a lot of money doing that. And I spent a lot of money and that, that's all going to go away. But the content is relevant. The content is, so the, the bringing people there, third parties or fourth, fourth parties or seventh, you know, touches away from you into your brand through SEO is going to have to be fixed. And we're going to have to figure out what that looks like. I haven't figured that out yet. I'm hoping that my, my, my partners and colleagues at the at Gallo family of wines are smarter than I am. They'll help me figure that out. Um, but I'm super excited about it. So I've spent a lot of money doing this, but again, I, come back to this singular fact. I don't know what's working, but the sum of the parts has me sold out every year for three months. And I've went from 400 cases to 7,800 cases last year. And I've never been with wine come January, February of the new year. And I'm starting to sell in April. So I'm, I'm within a nine month cycle, I'm done. So something's working. Right. I think that's valuable advice, even if you're not seeing a dollar-dollar return on that marketing investment. At the end of the day, if you're looking at your sales and they're going up, you're doing something right. Something's working. And you can't always isolate exactly what it is. But when you walk into a room, you feel buzzed. People know your name. Something's happening. Something's working. I get the pleasure of talking to you a lot, Dan. And I, we only have a few minutes left. And I'm sure there's a lot of people in the room that might want to ask you a question and hear more from you. So anything else to say before we turn it to q and I can talk forever. Yeah. Sorry. You probably realized that by now. Thank you, Dan. That was really interesting. A question for you is, if let's say all the producers in this room start following your advice and trying to chase what consumers want, or at least what they think consumers want, does that lead to parkerization and producers starting to make identikit wines or identikit messaging and marketing? And wouldn't that lead to the loss of this beautiful diversity that we have in Italian wine and that a lot of winemakers truly believe in and want to promote. I am all for talking about terroir, but I do, and bringing people into your space. Um, but it can't be your, it can't be 99% of your marketing and communications concept. Honestly, it's just, it's a, it's a failure. Italy happens to be too diverse. It's too parochial. There's too much neighborhoodism 
with regards to how many wines per region, 20 regions, 600 varieties, 30 per. How is a singular consumer at Italy going to understand that when they come and see a wall of wine? I'm not saying to be parkerized or filtering your communication strategy down to a singular thing. I just think that there's an opportunity and it's unique to every one person's marketing ideal and vision to figure out how to tell your story in a diaspora of Italian culture, as opposed to saying, my dirt and this grape that grows in that dirt is unique and special and it's diverse amongst the 600 grape varieties in Italy and the 20 grape regions. That's all well and good, but for how many people? And what that is doing to the Italian marketplace is that diversity is creating a broad scale. The reason why I said it earlier in that slide, French the French have identified two grapes in one region, three grapes in another region, and they're the two most expensive wines in the world. Their luxury of those, they've put everything into, I wouldn't call Bordeaux plain, I wouldn't call it not diverse, I wouldn't call Burgundy not diverse, but they focus their energies. I'm not saying the Tuar of Italy, like you can't grow Sangiovese in Piedmonte, why not? You can't grow Nebbiolo in, San in Tuscany, why not? And I'm not saying you have to, you know, unify a message of parkerization or stylization. You just have to be willing to stop talking about yourself all the time and stop whining <laughs> when it doesn't work. Any other questions? No. Okay, great. Well, thank you, Dan. Thanks for being here. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Listen to the Italian Wine Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We're on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Himalaya FM, and more. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production, and publication costs. Until next time, cheat cheat.